0: I'm Dan Glickberg from Fairway Market with another helpful Thanksgiving tip. When selecting your turkey, the vacuum-sealed package should be wrapped tightly around the bird. If it's not, look for another turkey. You can find more of our tips at fairwaymarket.com.
1: Hey, and welcome to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today is kind of like uh, in Karate Kid when Daniel first meets Mr. Miyagi. We Jeez. have... <laughs> <Yikes>. <laughs> I've been I've been waiting for that um, <laughs> drop. Uh, Michael, or Mike. Mike is better, please. Mecca. I, I'm Michael. This is Mike. Master of all things food in New York, radio, television, um, wonderful guidebook. If you don't know him... Where the hell have you been for the past 10, 20, 30 years? I mean, how long have you been in New York in the food scene?
2: Um, We're getting to be 30 years. 1982, January. Yeah. yeah. And that was cooking. That was not Yeah, no, that was straight out of the CIA. Um, I was a kid from Philly. Didn't know much. Didn't know anything about New York, honestly. I just had had kind of a... Like a lot of shifts. Like a troubled youth. And, you know, a lot of drugs. A lot of partying. And I knew if I went back to Philadelphia, I knew what I was just going to fall back into that stuff again. like Too many friends, too many phone numbers, too easy to get back in. So it was like, come to the city. This was then, plus, this is, was even then, you know, this was the restaurant town yeah. in America. I
1: mean, what was there for regional cuisine in Philly other than cheesesteaks?
2: Nothing. There was Le Fan. There was one French restaurant George Perrier had um, called Le Becfin. And it was stuffy, old. I mean, it wasn't so dissimilar to what Andre Saltner might have been doing or maybe Jack Richoux. It was classical French food one or two other chefs, and then like cheesesteaks and red tablecloth Italian yeah, stuff, yeah. there was nothing. I mean, Philly was an old Quaker town that kind of, seven, eight o'clock at night, the town was quiet. Yeah. Even to this day, it's still a quiet town. It's, yeah,
1: but I mean, you had people like Alfred Portale. Didn't he go to Le Becfin and then come to New York? Uh, was he at Le Becfin? I'm not sure. I know sure. he was in Philly
2: somewhere. I think that Straight was, fast, maybe. Or, yeah, but I think that was once yeah. he was famous. I yeah. think that somebody hired him to sort of bring some new york juice to philly like we got this guy and he's got three stars and he's a big shot but
1: it's always an exodus to new york it's not like people go to philly and say oh i'm going to start my culinary career here no man
2: (laughs) no man so new york was the thing you came here because this was really where you could cut your teeth it's where the great restaurants were um i had a little sublet apartment down on greenwich street in one of those mitchell llama buildings 310 greenwich and i remember i had student loans my rent was 500 bucks a month and uh I was on the waiting list at the Four Seasons restaurant, which is you know classic, great old New York. You know Joe Bomb comes out of that uh, that lineage, and the chef was a guy named Seppi Rankley, a really brilliant Swiss guy. And I got on the waiting list and took a job downtown at the Vista Hotel. Told him I'd, I'd leave the minute Seppi called me. I give him two weeks' notice, and he did. And that's where I started, you know, working at the Four Seasons and. It was great. I mean, I had a great, great run. But I remember, I mean, it's funny you remember things. I remember starting there, working six days a week, having to figure out how to do my budget, and my first check was $187 take home. <laughs> and my rent's $500, yeah. and I'm like, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> this doesn't work. I mean, 187 times four, less expenses, plus student loans. I,
1: then you so, just work more, so you don't have expenses.
2: Yeah, I worked a lot, and then I got lucky. Um, my girlfriend then was the doing her internship from the CIA at the Maurice which was a wonderful restaurant at the Murdiegan Hotel. Christian Delouvrier was the chef. And they had like a crisis. One day two of the best guys, one a Tournon and a sous chef got caught stealing a, a, a galantine out the back door. <laughs> they were going to have a party and they wanted to bring some food home. So they they were you know, it was a hotel. You can't steal from a hotel. I mean there's security checks as you leave. So they were walking out with a terrine wrapped up in a towel and they needed somebody bad. So I made a deal with um uh, Christian hired me to work it's a long story, but I was working nights at, 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 the, at the Four Seasons, and and then they let me come in in the morning early to work lunch, set up the kitchen, turn on the Bay Marie's, open up the walk-in box. Basically, an excuse to come in an hour early and leave an hour. Come in an hour early and leave an hour early, and then I so I did lunch at the Four Seasons and dinner at the Maurice for seven months, which was insane. Yeah, that's like literally two full-on services, six days a week, eighteen hours a day. At that
1: age, you could kind of burn yourself out like that
2: you completely right. When I look at that, I mean, I had more energy then than I have now, you know, times 20. It was just crazy. It was just like full on. This is what you have to do. You have to make the kind of money. And then finally, I got a sous chef job at the Maurice, which was a big salary bump up. Yeah. And I could quit the four seasons after a year. But yeah, it's been a while.
1: So you mentioned Christian de Louvier, which a lot of people in this town uh, of my generation don't 100% yeah. know. I think the last place he was at was um, Alain Ducasse, Which uh, was Saint
2: sad, yeah. sad, sad, sad. Before that, he was at Lespinasse, which is, Lespinasse had Grey Kuntz, which got four stars, and Grey had a very modern, typical, it was Grey Kuntz's food yeah. when he was great. And Christian replaced him and just totally redid the menu. Christian's from the south of France, he's from Gascony. Yeah. He's really into layers of flavors and braises and big flavors, and we uh, worked with Sondrins, but he really, Sondren's was an intellectual, and Christian's more of an organic guy, and Christian got four stars at the Maurice. I, I mean, excuse me, at, at Les Pinas. Christian had a great run there, and I have no idea why he took that job with um, with Ducasse, because it was like, if the restaurant gets four stars, oh, Alan Ducasse says, well, I'm Alan Ducasse, of course. Yeah. I mean, if the restaurant doesn't get good four, four stars, it's like, you're out the door. I'm Alan Ducasse. You screwed up. I mean, it was like, it was like you know, lose-lose. Yeah. No, there's no way you're going to get any, any credit in that guy's organization, and that's what happened. They got three stars, and he was kind of banished, and... It's funny. I haven't seen Christian in a long time. I'm going to. He's at a place up on the Upper East Cod called La Monjoie. I'm going to be there tonight, so I'll I'll tell you next time I see you how it was. But I bumped in last night. I was at um, was at Fedora, and the table next to me was Riyadh from uh, you know Minetta, yeah. and we, we got to talking. It was like a funny night. It was like chefs' night. So Riyadh comes in, and we're talking, and Riyadh mentions he loves what Christian's doing up up at uh, up at Manjoire. And then the guy the next table over was the new chef at Frankie's 570. And then on my the way out the door, somebody buys me. I'm with a, a friend of mine. And she, uh, somebody buys us a couple of drinks as we're putting our coats on, getting ready to leave. And I'm like, who it? And it was the girls from Stellina. Yeah. It was Sarah and Emma. I'm like, what is this? Like, the chef's hangout over here? What's going on? That's you know, cool, though.
1: But, I mean... This wasn't overnight. This was of your decades in service in the trenches oh, yeah. as a cook, as food media. I don't want people to get the wrong impression that you can just all of a sudden burst on the scene and then get drinks bought for you at some chef's <laughs> night out at some <laughs> no, restaurant on the Upper no. East Side. Yeah, no, you, know, this was I mean, it, it, you built yourself such a great um, you know, networking community uh, because of honesty and humility. So,
2: well, thank you. Yeah. No, it's it's really it's a really uh, this business. I think the guy you know I'll, I'll give such great credit to Tony Bourdain because I think when he wrote Kitchen Confidential. It was the first time somebody really wrote about what the industry's like without these rose-colored glasses. This wasn't some, you know, Harvard graduate chick from Cambridge saying, oh, you know, this wasn't MFK Fisher. This was a guy saying it sucks and it's full of losers and most of us are on drugs and we work six days a week and we screw girls in the walk And You know, that's kind of what it was. Those were those days. I mean, that's, it was, there was no glamour to this business. And I don't think he had any idea what he would have become because it, it was like I would tell people if I you know, I cooked when I was in junior high and high school I started when I was 13 which was way long ago and if I'd said to my high school guidance counselor you know on career day Mike yeah. what do you want to be <laughs> I want to be I don't think chef existed as a word yeah. it was like I want to be a cook because the guys that I were working for were like ex-marines They were that's who, where people learned to cook yeah. these were guys that wore white t-shirts smoked cigarettes on the line cutting boards were wooden then and all the cutting boards had just these burn marks around them because they put their cigarettes down while they cut meat or did whatever they were doing and then they picked the cigarette. and that was what kitchens were. There was yeah. no aspiration that you could take a culinary career and blow it up into anything.
1: So though there was a different meter uh, for what a chef was, I mean, there were chefs. You, you mentioned Alain Centrens yeah. who... Uh, I mean, is a patriarch of many New York kitchens. Um, where did you work with him? And I mean, Worked with him. He
2: was the consulting chef at the Maurice, because Maurice was run by... Jack Parker was a real estate guy. Meridian Hotel owned the other half, and Meridian was part of Air France. So Meridian's genius vision back in the 80s was they would they would have these hotels all around the world, and they would have a consulting chef. There was a three, so it was Paul Bocuse, Alan Sandrin's, Trois Gros, whatever the chef was, every four months... Every three months, he would come to the restaurant, he would do a new menu with the chef, you'd close, you'd do a press opening of the new menu, and your cooks can go work for this guy. So it was sort of, it was almost this hotel idea that restaurants didn't really have to make money, but if the food was great, people would come to the, ho- come to the restaurant and stay in the hotel just for the food. Yeah. I'm not sure it ever worked out that way. Uh, but so Sondren's worked at, well, he was our consultant chef, and luckily he really liked me. And I got to work with him in New York and uh, in Paris at Arcostrad. and. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, it was a different, the world was just much smaller back then. It was just, New York was a much different scene. Most every New York chef of my generation went to Europe to train because there was no paradigm. I mean, once you worked for Andre Saltner, once you worked for Jack Rachu, once you worked for Fezigay, you kind of had to go to France to really see what was going on. Because the difference between New York in the 80s and France was day and night. Yeah. They were just doing such better food than we were. Mostly because of ingredients and somewhat because of technique. And then that just changed. Um, American kids came up and got really good. Yeah. You know, and that kind of surprised the French guys that, you know, they thought we were just, you know, grew up on cheeseburgers and and curly fries and we would never get it. And, you know, you look at, I mean, a guy like um, Jack Rashue, you look at all the guys that came out of that kitchen. I mean, you know. A whole generation from Charlie Palmer and Frankie Crisp, a whole generation of American cooks, New York big-name cooks, they're now in their 50s, worked with Jack Reshue. And then as they came up, you know, you began to be able to, and and the ingredients got better here, you really began to see this paradigm shift. And I think now, there's so much talent in this country, and the ingredients here is good or better than Europe, which is um, an amazing thing to see, because it just wasn't that way. Well,
1: I mean, it's probably partially through subsidization, but at the same time, uh, everything was imported. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't because it was here. It just wasn't looked. It was cheaper, actually, to get it. Yeah, and we, we didn't
2: seen. have. It was still, I mean, in the 80s, we would get, if you had a good French restaurant or a good whatever restaurant, you were getting deliveries from the longest market twice a week from JFK. Yeah. And they came on, like, Tuesdays and Fridays, and it was catch as catch can because there wasn't this networking. I mean you have to give I'll give you know credit to guys like Boulay and some of these guys who early on said, Let me find farmers local, let me find farmers in Connecticut, upstate New York, Jersey. They can grow stuff for me. Yeah. And then then you had this whole organic thing going where there was Uh, Suddenly, a distribution channel between farmers and restaurants that in America it was trucks. Yeah. You know, it was Driscoll strawberries from California. It was out of season asparagus 12 months out of the year from wherever.
1: Well, at a point, you worked as a food importer. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I'd like to actually talk about Rungis in Paris because I got lucky enough to stop by there um, with Pascal Barbeau from L'Estrance. He's one of few chefs that actually go out to. And it is an airport. It's right next to Orly now, mm-hmm. um, and it's airplane hangars. And there's one viands, all just whole beef, and one just all greens, one just all wild and mushrooms, and it's just absurd. But it's all in one place, so you didn't have to go through that networking, visit small farms, gain relationships. Yeah, you it, took- it
2: made it for the for the Parisian chefs. It it became. You went at night. So if you went, you probably went at 3 in the morning because it, it was closed by 6 or 6.30. I 6 don't know. 30. I screwed
1: up my days, and um, I actually was out drinking that night, and I went, oh, shit. Uh, I have to go meet Pascal Barbeau. <laughs> They're like, who's that? I'm like, oh, he's like a three, four-star chef. I'm not sure, but I'm drunk right now, and i got to go meet this guy. Yeah, well, it, been, yeah. cause it would have been
2: because, I mean, you went to Ronji's Rung- Market at 6 o'clock was closed. Yeah. So you went overnight. It was
1: like 3 a.m., I think. Yeah, like,
2: that's what it was. That one was full on. And they had a fish market, a produce market, a meat market, and as you said, foraged mushrooms. But France also had this tradition, like Italy. I mean, France also had these great three-star restaurants in the middle of nowhere. You know, you had Marc Minot in, 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 uh, at L'Esperance in Vezelay. You had uh, Trois Gros out in the middle of, in, in Rouen, which is an industrial city. George Blanc was in Vona. But those guys would have farmers coming to their back doors. I mean, you'd literally have the guy knock on the door with, yeah. like, twigs in his hair, holding a, a, a you know, a, a, a big box of just-picked chanterelles or morels. So... The French and the Italians sort of understood this whole, I mean, locavore for them is like, duh, like, <laughs> what, 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 there was no option B. Yeah. That's how we live. In America, you know, we just, we were into distribution. America is a different, you know, it's a different food culture. So w- the ingredients now, honestly, some of these ingredients didn't exist in this country. Um, and some of them are just a result of great networking now where they've created this tie between farmers and kitchens that didn't exist a generation ago.
1: Well, you worked at Tavern on the Green, Windows on the World, I yeah. mean, legendary restaurants. Yeah. Were they uh, local for us?
2: No, you couldn't be. A tavern was, um, I mean, I, I was kind of proud when we were at Tavern. Tavern had been, Warner Leroy was this impresario, you know, no one remembers who he was these days, but Maxwell's, Drew worked for Warner. So Drew, in fact, the bar at Tribeca Grills, the old bar from Maxwell's Plum, oh, yeah. Drew bought it at auction. Um, you know, Warner was this guy, he was larger than life, his father did the... Uh, Uh, The Wizard of Oz, he came out of Hollywood in that tradition, and he'd always had Europeans, Germans, and Swiss that were French running his kitchen, and in 1984, 85, he hired an American kid who was a chef de cuisine at Lutece, because Warner at Lutece said, Andre, I want to do better food at Tavern, what can I do? And Andre said, hire one of my guys, so it's uh, a guy named Stefan Kopp, who's still a friend of mine. Um was hired at the age of, you know, 31 to be the chef at Tavern, and the first thing Stefan did was hire all Americans underneath him. So he had a night chef, a day chef, an executive sous chef, uh, with Frankie Crispo, it was Greg Godin, it was a bunch of guys that are still out there now, and I was one of them, and we were this American team, and Warner also rebuilt the kitchen for us. So he spent like a million bucks on what we wanted to make that kitchen work, um, you know, new tile floors, new stockpots, a whole new brigade. We weren't doing anything ahead of time. Everything was done to order. It was a challenge. Yeah. But it was still at the end of the day, what you find when you work when you work volume is it's a killer. Yeah. It's like it suddenly it becomes lowest common denominator food. There's a really I mean, Tavern on a busy night did seventeen, eighteen hundred covers. Um on weekends, she did a thousand brunch. In an hour you turned the kitchen and then you did seventeen hundred covers on Saturday night. Week on on the holidays it'd be like four thousand. It was And there's a point when you just can't make great food at those kind of numbers. There's like diminished returns with volume.
1: Yeah. No, it's funny reading a lot of New York Times reviews and other restaurant uh, pieces on boutique restaurant or 40-seaters. And, you know, when execution isn't there and then hearing of guys having worked in restaurants where it's thousands upon thousands of covers...
2: Well, thousands is hard. I mean, I'd say the balance, I mean, if you look at like per se on a busy night, like if you look at the great restaurants in New York today, what's per se going to do on a busy night? A hundred, 105. I mean, Bernadette is not going to do too much more and that's a really well-oiled machine, right? It's been four stars forever with just two chefs. I mean, Danielle's probably the guy that does the most volume that looks like bespoke food uh, because he's just got a great kitchen, a great brigade. It's a physically beautiful kitchen, but yeah, volume's tough. I mean, Look, I mean, Dave Chang's everybody loves David, and I'm not. I mean, I told David this. I mean, I've had more mediocre meals at Sambar than I can count. I've had great meals, and I've had meals a week later that were just what's that. But Momofuku's great. Why? It's got 20 seats. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of easier to control, and and that's how it used to be in the French, you know, three star Michelin's. Was it was they was one they would turn the table once a night if they did that. So if you had sixty seats or fifty seats, you did forty or fifty covers.
1: Well, that was so awesome about going to Rungis with Pascal Barbeau is we get back to the restaurant, he unloads everything, and um, he's like, "Okay, see you later." And I'm like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'll will see you." I'm like, "So how long does it take to get a reservation here?" He's like, mm, 3 four months." Yeah, because it was twenty four seats and one and a half turn. Yeah. That's it. I think they do like 40 covers a night.
2: Yeah, that's how, I mean, and even then, the paradigm for those French chefs who were really doing the best cooking on the planet at that time for that kind of food... They were still having trouble making money. I mean, Joel Robichon, who was maybe the best chef of his generation, retired at 50, closed Germain, four stars, just said, I'm done, or three stars, excuse me, Michelin. You know, The highest honor you can get, he'd had three stars forever, just said, I this is so hard to make money. You don't know. And I understand why, having been in those kitchens. Sondren's closed Luca Carton, 17 years at three stars, and just said, it's like walking a tightrope every year. It's too hard. It's not profitable. It's too much stress. I'd rather have fun and have a great two-star restaurant and sleep at night, and, and, and you know, not have to worry about my food cost being fifty percent. Uh, and that's still a struggle. I mean, that's still something chefs struggle with all the time. Is you know, it is a business at the end of the day. You know, it's you wonder why restaurants go to business, why some of them fail, some of them don't, why you eat some of the stuff you do. It's you got to make money, and that's sort of the weird. That's where she has to put their yeah. businessman hat on. I mean, it just a good friend of mine, uh, Josh Eden, Shorty's thirty two closed a couple of weeks ago, and I was oh, like, "Yeah, I didn't know that." Yeah, yeah I was like, yeah, it's a shame." The place yeah. was busy. I don't know what had happened, but um, and here he was a great guy, but somewhere, you know, between the lease or something. It just wasn't a hat. Well,
1: being chef and manager isn't always the same hat.
2: It's totally different halves of the brain. Totally. I mean, chefs are the worst enemies that way.
1: (laughs) Well, we're going to take a quick break and maybe talk about when French technique became American food and how you made your shift out of the kitchen, but not away from the restaurant into food media. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. We'll be right back. Thank you. Welcome back to The Food Scene on com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell here with Mike Colameco, guru of The Food Scene prior to the show even existing. Um, I wanted to also just give a little plug about your radio show. Uh, which has been going on since, what, 2006?
2: Yeah, it was fun. I mean, 2006, now it exists only in podcast form in this market. We're 100-some affiliates around the country, but WOR decided just, which isn't unusual in, in New York. The, most AM stations just sell their broadcasting on the yeah. weekends. So come Friday night, midnight, till Monday, the morning drive, it's Dr. So-and-so, <laughs> and it's the lawn man, and it's yeah. whatever it is. It's whoever wants to pay for it. But um yeah, it's on. It's a podcast called Weekend Food Talk now, and um, it's two. It's a two-hour show, live call-in, but it's mostly just me talking. Yeah, because I'm not in this live market. I just figure it's going to be a pretty long monologue, and let's have fun with it. Um, it was a fun it was a fun show to do live when I did it but it also became kind of OR oh, was just a funny place to be yeah. politically it became a strange station.
1: Well I mean it was also a really cool path of people that you followed Arthur Schwartz and then <laughs> I didn't know you mentioned both Rocco Dispirito yeah. and then Tyler Florence and then you.
2: Yeah it was Arthur really was a guy that, that made the brand he he had that show for 9 or 10 years. Um you know, and, and he was the food critic for the Daily News and a, you know, smart Jewish guy from Brooklyn that got the New York food scene and, you know, really connected with with WR's audience specifically. And then when, when he crashed and burned, they picked up Rocco. And, you know, that was one of Rocco's many steps along the way. And then Tyler, <laughs> which was curious because, I mean, Tyler's a, it's a cool guy, but he doesn't know New York at all. So, um yeah, I was the the, uh, the choice after that. And it, so it was a couple of years. It was like three years' worth of six days a week. Yeah. But it's nice not to have to do that because my, my real baby's a PBS show, and that's on every week, all year long, 6 yeah. o'clock, Channel 13, and that's a great – you know, I get to chronicle the New York food scene, which is, uh, you know – People say, how, is, how, so how do, where do you got ideas for the show? And I'm like, dude, this is New York. Yeah. I mean, ideas? I mean, if I could do this show twice a week if I wanted. They could
1: probably blindfold you, drop you off in a place, and you find the story.
2: Well, almost. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you that. Uh, somebody else made that claim once. But there's so many. I mean, the scene here is just New York's always been characterized by its velocity of change and the amount of talent that comes to its shores and the way neighborhoods transformed. I mean... We talked earlier about off microphone about you know downtown and Drew Nieperant in the early days at Mondreche. I mean, I lived down on Greenwich Street in the '80s and there was nothing Tribeca. There. there was you know Teddy's and then Odeon opened and that was like you know like a hipster hangout spot. I mean, Patrick Clark was a great chef, but it wasn't that thing. And then Mondreche came and and then think what Danny Meyer did to Union Square and, and what's happening now in Brooklyn. I know. It's crazy. I mean, if you Brooklyn, haven't been
1: out to Roberta's. I mean, this was Michael, Mike's first time here, and yeah. um,
2: it's amazing. I mean, I just. Brooklyn's on fire. There's just so much talent that's just percolated where you know Manhattan can only absorb so much, and the fringe neighborhoods of Manhattan now have become Brooklyn. You know, yeah. it's just a matter of finding a good lease. I, re- I remember um, when when um, Smith Street first first got going, talking to Alan Harding, who opened up his first restaurant. It was really the beginning of the Smith Street Renaissance and. He said, I was looking downtown in Manhattan and I was looking at the rents and I was like, man, you got to sell a lot of chicken to pay that. <laughs> and, and then I found this spot on Smith Street and granted, there was nothing there, but it was a thousand bucks a month for a commercial space. And he's like, if it fails, I'll have like a dope, a dope apartment with exactly, a really sick yeah. kitchen in the back. I'm
1: you, you can't even get rent like that. Right. You know, I'll have
2: a f- floor through ground floor apartment on Smith Street with a commercial kitchen, whatever, you know. So uh, so it's sort of out of necessity that these na- that, you know chefs find places. And New York's just got an audience, you know. There's we are as a, as a, as a tribe of you know, New Yorkers. Just you know, we we're all about food because creativity can't exist without the commerce to support it. So at the end of the day, you can have all the creative talent you want, but unless you have people buying, it's good for nothing. And New York, that's it's just the intersection of creativity and commerce. Yeah. So it always has been. There's always people will spend money here for good art and or good food or good craft, whatever you want to call. Well, it. Well,
1: when did you take your? Creative side of the brain, and get out of the kitchen and focus on food media to better explore and. There was a, that. there was
2: a little bridge. I had two my my wife and I had two kids while well, we had a restaurant in Cape May for eight years, and we ran it in the summer, came back to New York in the winter, and. um when my kids were little, I was just okay. This is a game changer. I mean, that I think most people find that having kids changes something. And I knew it suddenly it occurred to me all the all the chefs I'd worked for from Seppi and Christian that had families how horrible it was for them because they were never around. They, they missed everything. They missed the soccer games, the graduations, the school plays, the weekend. They just you work this this life that is everyone else's off time. Yeah. You work nights, you work weekends, you work holidays. So. I thought I got to do something else. We sold the restaurant. We had a few bucks. I started a food import business because I knew food. And that was a good little bridge where we were in China when no one was in China and nobody knew China had apples. And it turns <laughs> out they've got a third of the world's apples. You know, like China just keeps surprising people. And, and um, But that wasn't, my heart wasn't in that because that was like making money doing that felt like stealing because it was just, I used to work. You know, coming into a restaurant and peeling carrots every day and making stocks and mopping the floor felt like an honest living. You know, making six figures slinging pineapples from Guangxi Province was like, I don't know. I felt like I was selling crack. What's this? Like, where's the where's the the craft in that? So, I was in North Jersey, and I had a neighbor whose daughters were my son's age when they were all little kids. And my kids, I had a home office in the import business, and they were always at my house. My kids would come off the bus with his kids, and they would always come to my house and play. So he'd come over for dinner a lot, and he's he was a photographer shooter for njn and kirk Sore said mike we should do a food show it was like 1998 and 99 and nobody was doing anything i liked then you know it was all the same stuff it was like hey my name is mike let's make lasagna yeah you know,
1: who wants to do that oh what was that pastor that was on pbs right. <laughs> I there, were, there were i, I sometimes <laughs> yeah. i wake up in the middle of the night and i'm like was i really watching this weird food show back when i was younger really a yeah. pastor yeah
2: i don't remember that one but Kirk wanted to do a show, and I said, "Okay, let's. I, I'm, I'm an ex chef, and I have access to kitchens. Let's do a show nobody's doing, a real documentary style on location in the field show. Camera goes up on your shoulder, news cam style. We put lavs on people, we get a stick mic, and we spend a day in kitchens. And we 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 shot a demo. We went to the Food Network, and it was '99, and they weren't doing anything." Like that, yeah. I mean, to me, they're still like a great waste of bandwidth for what they do. I mean, most of the TV Food Network stuff's just flat out garbage. Um, but, but you know, this wasn't for them. Everything they were doing then was in studio. It was Emerald. It was all that other stuff. They were doing nothing documentary style. And the next place I went was Channel Thirteen, and they really liked the idea. We delivered three pilots, and they went crazy. They went viral. I mean, the first three weeks they aired. The second or third week had the Best Nielsen's because it was right in the fall sweeps. They put us up in October, November. Then they re-aired them again in February. We had the best Nielsen's of the of those three weeks in. And then they called me up to can you do a series? And that was 10 years ago. So yeah. it was just, you know, honestly, it was luck beat brains. It was just like nobody. <laughs> there was no plan for this. There yeah. was no. I went to the Wharton School and decided I would do this food thing. It was just like, hey, that's all I know.
1: Yeah. I mean, when you made that crossover, too, um, were there specific kitchens like, oh, I'm going to go and spend time in that kitchen and show yeah i
2: did what was your first episode i'll tell you no it's funny because i really wanted to i mean i think that the strength of new york is not just that we have the great great restaurants but we have this great diversity too and you can eat anything from anywhere 45 minutes from from grand central i mean you know in terms of ethnic in terms of price so the first three shows were three three new york delis we did second avenue Katz's, and carnegie We did a show on Harlem where I went up to um, Charles Southern who was on 8th Avenue up in the 140s. We did a restaurant, oh, oh, what's the cat's name? He's out of business. Now, Copeland's man, Copeland, he was a great story. Mr. Copeland had a restaurant on the west side of Harlem for 30 or 40 years, and we did a story on uh, Wells' Famous Chicken. Now, two of these, were, actually all three of these restaurants are closed, but I was so happy to have done it because Wells' Famous is where Chicken and Waffles was actually invented. It wasn't the place in, in, in L.A. It was Wells' Famous in New York City, and we got the story from Mrs. Wells, who told, her, told, told us about how his husband came up and blah, 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 and the third one was just a funny mismatch because we, we didn't have any money. So Ryland Inn was in New Jersey. There's a great diner called the Summit Diner. So we did like a dinner at the Ryland Inn, breakfast at the Summer Diner, and a Korean place in Midtown uh, called Gammy Oak, that's still there. That Gammy yeah. Oak, you know, Salong Town. Yeah. So it was sort of that. So I, we didn't know what to do. I mean, we didn't have any money. We had shot this B roll, and we had these three shows. And I said, "We'll just call it like the day in the life of a Jersey commuter." Yeah. Like, <laughs> you wake up and you have breakfast at the Summit Diner. You have lunch at Salong Town, and then you have dinner. And we'll just and I'll, we'll cover it with voiceovers. I mean, it was whatever. It was necessity. But yeah, so it was all over the place. But but the idea was to tell stories. Yeah. And then And then the next season when we were actually. I kind of cobbled together a budget to work with. I mean, we we did Danielle. We went out and we did the French Laundry. You know, we began to do more serious takes on food as well as all sorts of ethnic stuff.
1: Yeah, but it's that stuff that feels real. Kind of a, you know, your wife is what South Korean? Korean, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Going to Thirty Second Street, yeah, it's crazy. still a maze. Yeah. I mean, it's one block is a whole world. Yeah. Uh, if you've
2: not been to K Town, what is it between Broadway and Fifth? Between Broadway and Fifth, there's a couple. There's a great little vegetarian place called Hangawi that's on the other side on on the other side of Fifth on Thirty Second. But for the most part, it's that corridor, and it's authentic Korean food for Koreans. I mean, they're not doing. I mean, a lot of what masqueraded as Chinese food or Thai food in Manhattan was often. Underseasoned, seasoned over you know neutered well, not so hot
1: not provincial i mean you didn't see szechuan ta i mean uh, taiwanese like that didn't right. happen that until did a few years didn't ago. happen
2: until a few years ago and the koreans from day one were just cooking for koreans i mean i remember going into good korean restaurants on 32nd street and they would they wouldn't seat you they'd give you a menu and you'd read the menu and they'd say okay you think you want to eat here? Because they were really tired of, of white people coming in, sitting down, getting a glass of water, messing up the table, and then asking, you know, in some specific restaurant, asking if they did, you know, short ribs. No, we don't have short ribs. You know, this is Salong so Town. Yeah. This is what we do. We do pajeon. We do Salong so Town. We do the raw oysters with the thing. And, no, we're not going to make you a noodle stir fry. And, and so, as defense, they just say, here's the menu. If you don't like it, don't even bother us. Yeah. Because uh, we got more business we can shake a stick at, so. Um, yeah, because the Korean scene still in Midtown is great. And, and the Korean scene in, in Flushing is great, too. And North Jersey. Yeah. I mean, Fort Lee's got it crazy because that's, that's, that's where the Korean expat community lives. Yeah. I mean, after L.A., New York has the biggest Korean community in the country.
1: What other big ethnic communities other than, like, Chinatown are still inherent in New York?
2: Well, I mean, you know what... We, we were out in Queens last year, and in Corona, there's this big Mexican community now. I mean, I asked a guy from Nixtamal, why are you in, well, why Corona? You know, when you think of Corona, you think, you know, back a generation. And because that's, for some reason, that's, a, that's Mexicans were late arriving to New York. That's where they settled. Um, there's a big Filipina community out there. Of course, I think many, like, you know, you talk to foodies all the time. Probably the best Chinese food in the city now is out in Flushing, and some of those food malls, and those food courts, and some of those restaurants. So, pretty remarkable i mean we pretty much have everything um we don't have anything danish yet though do we right you we were talking about that off microphone oh, before Danish. Um, yeah because because what yeah. marcus did at aquavit wasn't really swedish food either it was sort of swedish food through marcus's yeah, prism that's so true.
1: i mean I, scandinavian being such a uh, hot and hot cuisine at the moment yeah with i don't Noma. know if there are more traditional i mean uh, van Dog down in the east village is yeah. dutch inspired but um, I don't know if there's any, you know, hard-hidden Dutch restaurants. No, there right isn't.
2: That's always, I mean, that's always been funny because I think there's, there's Senegalese. I mean, there's African communities up in Harlem. And, and, I mean, we have kind of, you know, Peruvian. You could sort of find anything from anywhere. But it's funny. The northern tribes, the northern European tribes just don't get served. And who knows why? Maybe they're just they, – they eat at home. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Who knows what, that, what the there answer that is.
1: There are plenty of in New York, but –
2: or something. Yeah, or whatever. <laughs> whatever fats is but... bastardization right. of that right. uh, pastry right. is. Overproofed and undercooked with yeah. a lot of sugar <laughs> in it.
1: But, you know, throughout the years eating in New York, um, are there still go-tos? Are there still Star Wars of, you know, an older era that have not changed their quality and concept that you go back to?
2: Yeah, you know, it's there are. And, and it's... I think in like different genres I mean, Keynes has gotten a lot of love lately because f- people finally discovered it but I've always you know, I believe it not, I've always liked Ben Benson Ben Benson is yeah. this cool guy man he goes back to the to the early days of Alan Stillman's empire when they were running places called Thursdays and Fridays which became TGI Fridays yeah. but they had a club called they had a, bar, a restaurant called Fridays and it opens Thursdays and Wednesdays and Ben Benson's is like a classic American chop house and a, a young guy doing that same kind of thing it was Michael LaMonaco and Porterhouse kind of like new generation to yeah. Ben Benson's where you could be a foodie and love it. You could bring your uncle from Ohio that just eats meat and potatoes and they'll love it. Um, I, I've always loved that place. And there's still, you know, a couple of places in Chinatown. I mean, I still think the Peking Duck House has great Peking Duck. Hop key across the street's a dump, but I still love, you know, <laughs> the black bean sauce with the little snails. I mean, there's still these places you go to. And, and I don't, I mean, one of the great mysteries to me is why the deli scene kind of dried up in New York. You know, t- two million plus Jews living in New York City, and what are we left with? Katz's and Carnegie and this sort of Second Avenue. Yeah,
1: I mean, there's a slight rise in Ashkenazi, but you can't really dress it up. Sephardic has a lot more yeah. flavor and spice, yeah. but, um, you know, talking about stews and uh, old European, almost like cooking, show things. That's, uh, I
2: think of that dish, I love yeah. that dish, and that, when, when, when Abe, when Second Avenue closed, the original Second Avenue, that was all that stuff on the menu was just gone. Yeah. You know, well, all those really rich, gnarly, you know, barley and knuckles and pieces of meat. Dishes you just eat and you wouldn't have to eat for three days <laughs> yeah. again.
1: Well, everything that took a while to cook. Yeah, all the braises. So I feel like, you know, they flipped everything. Oh, yeah. this takes, you know, 20 minutes to make. There wasn't that same kind of heart and soul and, um, you know long time in care. That was grandmother. Yeah.
2: That was Eastern European grandmom cooking. I mean, so, and that's why I'm so glad to see like Russ and Daughters, they own the building, so they're not going to go anywhere. Yeah. So, or Barney Greengrass, you know, these vestiges of what had been this old Jewish tradition where they were all over. Even when I came to New York, there were so many delis and so many more of those restaurants around. But um, I, I don't want to watch nostalgic about the old New York because I think what's, what's great is the new thing. The, yeah. the, the, the changes, I mean, we're sitting out here at Roberta's and we just sifted and wrote that review a couple of months ago that, I don't think the chef could have penned a better review for himself. I mean, it really describes sort of the what this place is. It, it's a one-star restaurant if you want to come here and just do nothing but eat pizza. It's a three-star restaurant if you sign up for the tasting menu. It's a solid two-star and everything in between. And you know, what, what is where are we? Bushwick? What is this neighborhood, man? I, Williamsburg br- yeah, borders
1: Williamsburg, Bushwick. It's it's out there. It's its own place. It's autonomous. It's Roberta's world now. Yeah, it seems uh. to be.
2: Planet Roberta. And and you know, I mean, Williamsburg's kind of got its thing going on, and there's great pizza. I mean, all of this stuff. Look. When I started in this city, you couldn't get good bread. You could literally you couldn't get it. the bread. Got to the, the bakers worked at night. They delivered it in these big brown bags at six in the morning. So they just steam and it would, yeah. by dinner it was stale. Yeah. So and the, so the idea now that we've got you know Balthazar and Sullivan Street and Tomcat. I mean, it's crazy and, and butter to put on that. That's real butter. I mean, you guys have a future. I say you guys because you're thirty one. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the future for for young foodies in this country is just remarkable because the paradigm so swung to the point where I, I, I think. I don't think I can tell you that all my old French chefs, like Daniel, like Delouvrier, like whomever, they'll admit now that the best ingredients are in America, better than in France, and the technique here is as good. So it's full on. It's it's our it's our time now.
1: Yeah, <laughs> we could leave it at that. I think that's the Goonies, right? It's our time now. <laughs> is though? I didn't yeah. know. Really? Oh
2: no, man. No, <laughs> no, I don't. that's
1: a great quote. But no, I also, it is. It's, yeah. I think
2: that I think the cooking. I think the most vibrant culinary scene. In the world right now is just seen taking place in America, from Portland to Austin, Texas, from you know, Saint Louis to Small cities, little restaurants popping up, and of course the big ones like New York, Chicago, yeah. San Francisco. It's just we are the place to be.
1: So when are you going to do a national version of your book?
2: I, oh yeah, no the book. Forget books, man. Print's like so dead. It's so hard <laughs> to get money out of these publishers. I'd like to. I would. I, I've done a lot of shows in Europe, and what I'd like to do is more shows in America. I mean, I'd love to go to Portland, spend four or five days filming, and yeah. go to Seattle and spend four or five days filming, and go through Texas. I'd love to go to. I mean, Birmingham, Alabama. There's Charleston. There's all of these great food scenes, and what's happening is they're just rediscovering. Discovering, you know, the guy at Anson Mills and the chefs in Charleston, the guys, they're rediscovering, like, artisanal southern ingredients, going back to seed crops, where there was, these things have been lost and bringing them back again. Yeah, it's importing just, be damned. Yeah, importing be right? Who needs it? And who needs Monsanto? Let's just grow yeah. grits the way they were supposed to be grown from the kind of corn. And where'd they find that corn? Moonshiners. Yeah. Because they weren't using Monsanto stuff. I mean, it's just, this country's just got a food scene now that you kids are lucky.
1: Yeah. Well, we're lucky to have had you kind of blaze that <laughs> I'm path i'm not going yet <laughs> yeah no i mean but uh, have you there actually that you know help guide Thanks, us man. and you know you really did blaze a trail for people like me and other people in food media that came out of the kitchen uh slightly apprehensive to uh, arrive in this world which can be jaded and slanted and uh, is is uh, jaded yeah, and is yeah. slanted
2: and often rewards mediocrity over over you know over merit yeah. but that's i mean Keep up the great work, and thanks for the compliment. Much appreciated. We'll,
1: no prob- we'll have you back on. You hey, <laughs> take the L train. Now <laughs> yeah, I know my I stop. Exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Mike Colameco, thanks for being on the food scene. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Terkel, and hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers.
2: We'll, we'll do it, man. Thanks. Good. See you later, guys. Right.
1: Following is a message from Jones Family Farms. Jones Family Farms is a 400-acre working farm offering quality agricultural products all year round, from fresh summer berries to Christmas trees in the winter, and an award-winning winery that is open from April to December. The reach of the Jones Family Farms is hard to capture, from their advocacy work through the Working Lands Alliance to ongoing classes in the Harvest Kitchen. Jones
2: Family Farms is as passionate about education as it is about farming. Whether you're picking fresh strawberries or exploring local wines,